You're listening to another message from Generation City Church. I don't really look like this. Very nasty and unloving. And, and I happen to be speaking about love today. Great illustration for my message. As Margot said, when she was hosting, um, uh, we've been over the last two weeks, this is the third week, unpacking the practical aspect of our church's vision. And the first week, a fortnight ago today, uh, we looked at the first pillar of our vision, which is I see a church hungry for God. And um, Margot said that I spoke about making space in our giving for God to move. It was actually more than that. I spoke about three areas where we can create space in our life for God to move and, and produce a greater hunger for him in our life. And uh, I'd encourage you, if you weren't here for that, grab the CD. It's available down at reception. Last week, I unpacked the second pillar, was that I see a church that loves the Bible. And uh, I made myself some, somewhat vulnerable last week, uh, unpacked a few of the experiences and the emotions that we had during uh, the last few years and some of the uh, challenges that we faced and uh, I, I spoke about the fact that in the storms of life, in the unfairness of life, we've got to stop and ask ourselves before we react, what does the Bible say? So I'd encourage you to get that CD as well. Today I'm on the third of those uh, pillars. I see a church unified with an unshakable love for each other. And uh, next week we'll be looking at a church with a huge heart for the lost and the broken and then, of course, the last one, which is by no means the least, I see a church passionate about discipleship. Um, the key to a great church is great disciples, uh, not just attenders, but followers of Jesus Christ is what make a fantastic church. But today I'm unpacking the third one. I see a church unified with an unshakable love for each other. Let me say this from the very beginning. The reason that we see the kind of conduct that I spoke about last Sunday, the reason we see that kind of conduct in the church as much as you see it anywhere else in life is because the church, like every other organization or group or gathering in life, is filled with broken people. And broken people have the very high potential of hurting each other. And broken people, friends, include you and I. We all have our level of brokenness and every one of us have the very high potential of hurting those around us, particularly those who love us the most and perhaps who are trying to help us the most. You know, that's why, because we're so full of broken people, that's why love must unify us. Love must tie us together. Love must be the driving, unifying force in everything that we do as a church. You know, if we are to help each other heal and grow through our brokenness, it takes love. It takes a high level of love. If we are to help each other develop in our faith walk, it takes a huge amount of love. But what is love, actually? Oh, it's a title for a movie, I think. <laughs> I haven't seen that one. Has anyone seen that one? It's worth seeing. What, what actually is love? And how do we outwork love in our life? It's a question that has probably dominated the thinking of a lot of people throughout the generations since the world has existed. What actually is love? Well, well let me say this from the very outset. 
Love is an action, not a feeling. It has feelings, but it's not simply a feeling. It's an action. And love is secondly operated in by choice. It's a decision that we make to act in love, to behave in love, to, to determine what we do out of love. It's a, it's a choice. It's a decision. It's not just a feeling. But thirdly, love will be accentuated in our life the closer we walk in relationship with the Holy Spirit. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 5 that the love of God is shed abroad in our heart by the Holy Spirit whom the Father has given us. You know, the love of God, God's love is placed in us and it, it, it permeates every fiber of our being. The closer we walk with the Holy Spirit, His love becomes a more of a driving, dominating force that carries a lot of feelings with it, but will position us and enable us to be more loving to those around us. I want to unpack today, as quickly as I can in the time that I have, what the Bible says love is. Because the Bible defines love very, very clearly as an action, not a feeling. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the love chapter, the wedding chapter, the one that everybody uses but don't really take a lot of notice of what it actually says. Um, 1 Corinthians 13 verse 1 says, If I could speak all the languages of earth and of angels, but didn't love others, I would only be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I had the gift of prophecy, if I understood all of God's secret plans and possessed all knowledge, and if I had such faith that I could move mountains but didn't love others, I would be nothing. All of those dynamics that every Christian longs for and yearns for would cause you to become nothing if it's not driven or built on a foundation of what the Bible calls is love. If I gave everything I have to the poor and even sacrificed my body, I could boast about it. But if I didn't love others, I would have gained nothing. Now, here's the definition. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not jealous. It's not boastful. It's not proud. And it's not rude. Love does not demand its own way. Love is not irritable. And love keeps no record of being wronged. It does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up, never loses faith, is always hopeful and endures through every circumstance. You know, the thing that will position us to become more attractive to our broken world is this thing called love. The thing that will make us magnetic, that will make us attractive, that, that will make us the aroma of God in our broken, messed up, angry and wounded world is this thing called love. In fact, Paul spoke about the church should become the aroma of Christ. We should have a scent about us that people can smell us wherever we go. And the thing they should smell is this thing called love. And that's what will make us magnetic. We will carry the aroma of God. And you know why when we love, we will carry the aroma of God? Because the Bible tells us God is love. That's what God is. God doesn't just have love. He doesn't just feel love. He doesn't care. God is love. 
His nature is made up of love. So when we truly love, as the Bible defines love, we will carry God wherever we go, and that's what will make us magnetic. Bible bashing, threatening people about end-time events will not make you attractive. But loving them with the love that the Holy Spirit sheds abroad in your heart will cause people to be drawn to you, wanting what you've actually got. Let me unpack this. What does it look like to really love people? What does it look like to love the person next to you? And I'm not talking about your spouse. I'm talking about the person perhaps you don't even know that might be sitting in front of you, behind you, crossing the auditorium from you. What does it mean to love each other in here as as Christ loved us? Because that was a commandment he gave us, that we were to love one another as disciples, as, as Christ loved us. But what does it also mean to love people when we leave here? We go back to our sphere of influence, when we go back to our workplace, to our schoolyard, to our places of education, to our places of influence. What does it look like to truly love others? Well, the first definition that love is, is love is patient. And I fail abysmally at this one. I, I think one of my greatest weaknesses as a man is impatience. I had it growing up as a child. I, money would burn a hole in my pocket. I would get pocket money. I used to get 50 cents a week. Went a long way back then, 50. I remember actually getting two bob, but, uh, you know, 20 cents for the younger generation, two bob. 50 cents a week, and I couldn't spend it quick enough, and usually it was gone before the sun went down. I'd get it on Friday afternoon from my dad, and he would give me 50 cents, and I would usually get it about 4 o'clock. Before it got dark, it would be gone. I would have spent it, and I would have eaten it, usually on lollies from the local shop in Cahiba, out near Charlestown. The building's still there, but it's no longer a shop. It's a suntanning place. But uh, I, would, it would, I would just be impatient. And then, and then when I started working, I couldn't wait for payday. I had to get my money. And I would actually have it spent before I even got it. I, I was just an impatient man. But impatience has probably been one of my greatest weaknesses. And when you are impatient, the Bible says you lack love. You know, I, I, uh, I think satnavs have been the greatest blessing to marriages. <laughs> Margot is useless at reading maps. Even sat-navs can get it wrong. In 100 meters, turn right, and you're on a freeway, and there's no turning right anywhere on the freeway. So they can get it wrong too, and I get impatient with Nora on the sat-nav. <laughs> but Margot would be reading a map. We'd be driving down the road. She'd say, look, uh, uh, just up here, you're going to go past the set of lights. You're going to turn right. Now, I've got somehow an inbuilt thing in me that even if I don't know where I'm going, I kind of get a general sense of direction. And I think, I don't think we should be turning right. I think we should be turning left. And she'd go, no, no, the map says we turn right. And I said, oh, no, I don't think this is the way we should be going. And then she'd start to get frustrated. And when she got frustrated, I'd get intolerant. And I'd say, listen, listen I, something's wrong here. So I'd pull over and I'd look down and she would have the map entirely upside down. <laughs> this is not an exaggeration, is it? She would have the map upside. Now, of course, when you're reading it upside down, you're going to turn right. But when you turn it the right way up, you actually turn left. You know, but I would get so intolerant. I read that book years ago, Why Women Can't Read Maps and Why Men Won't Ask Directions. It is so, so true of human nature. But we would have some really big fights in the car over things like that. The other thing that happens is I, I am a, a terrible backseat driver, particularly when Margot's driving. This morning, even coming to church, there's a stop sign. I know, yeah, but you're going too fast and we're nearly there. Pull up. You know, and then she'd say, look, stop doing it. Oh, well, you do it to me. Oh, okay, well, let's... And then it's on in the car this morning. <laughs> so what do I do? I just say, I'm preaching in a moment. Don't even go there. We're not discussing this. 
It's really my way of just shutting it down because I know I'm going to lose the argument anyway. But, but the reality is I am so impatient. Now, you're laughing, but sometimes in the car it's not a laughing matter. It can get really tense, and you know what I'm talking about because you go there as well. I can see the look on your face. But when my boys were little, I would be so impatient with them learning stuff. You know, and it's like the truth is many of you look at Margot and I and you say, oh, you, you know, your boys are serving the Lord. They're doing so well in life, etc." So I can't take a lot of credit for that. It's really just been the grace and the goodness of God because I was so impatient. The kids, you know, they'd be eating and they'd be dropping food on the floor and it's like, hold your fork properly, will you? If you just held it properly, it wouldn't be flicking all over the place. You're two now, for goodness sake. You should have it together. It's like, you know, and I would be so intolerant of them. But you know something? That made me a very unloving father. The reality is people particularly kids, but people, go so much further with encouragement than they do with criticism that comes out of impatience. And often our impatience causes us to be sarcastic, causes us to be... Sarcasm was one of my worst ones. I was, I was a master at sarcasm, and I could cut with my words. And, and I'm not proud of that. But when I look at the Bible and say, God... You don't want me to be like that. Jesus wasn't impatient with me. Jesus isn't impatient with anybody. You know, it's, it's actually his patience, his kindness, and his long-suffering that leads us to want to give our life to him. So I wasn't a very, very loving father because love is patient, and love is an action. And patience, therefore, is an action. It's like I can feel it rising up and think, oh, I'm just so over this guy, not getting this. I'm just so over this person. Just, I, I encourage them. They say, yeah, I'm going to go well. And then they just fall and stumble again and you can become impatient. But you know something? You can still have that feeling of impatience but still act with patience by actually embracing and say, come on, mate, you can do it. Come on, mate, you can get up, you can achieve. But on the inside, you're going, I don't think you're going to make it. But you can still act in love because it's not a feeling. It's a decision. It's an action to take. The second one, love is kind. This is where I can redeem myself from my impatience. I, Margot and I, many of you would know, ran a Subway sandwich franchise uh, many years ago. And um, I remember one day, I think it was school holidays, it was so busy. We had a line of customers out the door that we had a production line going, making people sandwiches. And I was manning the register, doing the transactions. And and uh, there was this woman in the line, and she'd been in the line for quite a while because it was a long line, and, and people were waiting to get their lunch. And finally came to this woman, and she, she looked up at me with this look of stress on her face and said, I've left my office without my purse. She said, I've got no money to pay for this. She was so embarrassed. She was so, so humiliated. And immediately I just leaned forward, and I said to her, I said, it's okay. This one's on the house. And I did it quietly. And she walked, she said, thank you so much. And she walked out. The next day she came back in during a quiet spell. She gave me a scratchy. She said, I bought you this because of your act of kindness yesterday. You saved me so much embarrassment. I didn't win anything off the scratchy. Just, but, but the reality is that I never win anything, things like that. But, uh, you know, the truth is it was an act of kindness. But more than that, it was actually an act of love because love is kind. Love, love covers people's embarrassment. There's something in the Aussie mindset that we get off on people's embarrassing situations, that we laugh at people. You know, when Julia Gillard fell over in Indonesia, 
How often did the media keep playing that clip? One, one report must have showed it five times in the one news report. And I thought there's something in the Aussie mindset that just loves laughing at other people's embarrassment. But you see, love is, love is kind. And love out of kindness will actually seek to cover someone's humiliation. I read a story uh, years ago, and I think I've even used this at times in, in uh, messages as an illustration of a young boy who wet his pants at school. He's sitting in the classroom and uh, he was old enough for it to be an embarrassment, not young enough for it to be who cares, everybody does it. And uh, he's sitting there and lost control and there was a puddle on the floor at his feet. The front of his shorts were all soaked and it was, it was clearly obvious if he was to stand up what would have happened. And and the little boy's sitting there stressing, going, how am I going to live this down? What, everyone's going to laugh at me when they see what's happened. How do I hide this? How do I cover this? And all of a sudden, he sees the teacher walking towards him. And this little girl happens at the same time to pick up a fishbowl that the kids had in class, walked across, tripped, and poured the whole lot over him. He was soaked from head to toe. And it was like he stood up with the water dripping off him the teacher then proceeds to scold the young girl for her clumsiness and the boy's sent home to get changed a a dry pair of clothes and comes back to school the next day the boy goes up to the girl in the classroom and says you did that on purpose didn't you and she said these words yes i wet my pants in class once too and i know the feeling the embarrassment the humiliation And I didn't want you to face that, so I thought the best thing to do would be to soak you to the bone and hide it and cover. Because that's what kindness does. Love is kind. Love goes out of its way. You know, I tell you something. Love is kind. Love isn't jealous. You know, it's, it's not love that's blind. It's jealousy that's blind. Jealousy is extremely blind. Jealousy, in fact, is the tie that binds and binds and binds and binds and twists and tangles until you've got a knot like a cancer inside of your soul. Jealousy is a mental cancer. I was reading uh, early this morning before we came up for the first service the story of the two prostitutes in 1 Kings. Remember, they were both pregnant. They both gave birth to a baby within days of each other. And one of the prostitutes through the night rolled over onto her baby, not realizing it, and suffocated the child. And when she woke up, she realized the child was dead. And before the other mother wakes up, you can read it in 1 Kings chapter 3, before the other mother wakes up, she takes her dead child in and quietly swaps the babies over. And, and the mother then wakes up and finds a child dead, goes to feed it, realizes it's dead, but at a closer look, sees that it's not actually her child. Long and the short of it is a big bung fight broke out between the two of them that they brought their case to Solomon. And then Solomon, who was supposedly the wisest king who ever lived, said, so the facts are, ladies, each of you are saying the dead child belongs to the other and the living child belongs to you. They said, yes. He said, well, here's the answer. Bring me a sword. We're going to cut this baby in two. You can have half each. The, The one who wasn't the mother, said, that sounds fair to me. Yes, neither of us can have a child. But the one who was the mother said, please don't harm the child. Give the other lady the child. Solomon very quickly said, give that woman the child. She's obviously the mother. But the other woman, jealousy drove her to such a depraved thing as as say, yeah, cut the baby in two. 
She was so jealous that it was her baby that had died and driven to this depraved thinking. But this is a true story. This is Bible history. She actually said, yes, kill the other baby so none of us have because she was so driven by jealousy. And jealousy is not love. I read a story once of two business owners who, who both had businesses that were directly across the street from each other and neither of them talked to the other. They were both in competition with each other and they were so driven by jealousy that when one of them would get a customer, they would almost wave to say, oh, I've got a customer and you haven't. And they were so competitive with each other. One night, a, an angel visited one of the businessmen and said, I'm going to give you whatever you ask for. They said, I want you to know this. Whatever it is you ask for, your competitor across the street is going to get twice as much. What is it you want? Do you want to be extremely wealthy? Do you want to be filthy rich? He said, I will make you filthy rich, but you need to know that your competitor across the street will be twice as rich as you are. Do you want to live a long, healthy life? If you want to live a long, healthy life, I can make that happen. But you need to know you will live a long, healthy life, but your competitor will outlive you. You will die before he does. What, what is it you want me to do? You just need to think carefully because whatever I give you, whatever I bless you with, whatever I pour out into your life, your competitor will get double. And the, the, the shopkeeper looked disappointed and, and began to ponder his thoughts. And all of a sudden, he said, I know what I want you to do. I want you to strike me blind in one eye. Jealousy will drive us to some of the most depraved acts. And it's not love. Love is not jealous. Love isn't boastful. You know, we're all really bad at this. You know, someone said once, the reason why God gave us two ears and one mouth is we're supposed to speak half as much as we listen or listen twice as much as we speak. But most of us want to tell our story. We want to tell the good things that are happening in our life. We want to sing our own praises and, and, and let people know how successful we are or how much achievement we've, we've engaged in. But, but let, me, let me tell you something. Most of us are really poor at listening to someone else's success. It's someone else's breakthrough. It's someone else's healing. It's someone else's good story. We somehow have this thing, well, I, I want to outdo you. One-upmanship is what we call it in the Aussie culture. You know, you, you know, I can do better than that. You know, anything you can do, I can do better. Anything you can do, I can do too. You know, remember the song? Um, we, we are so bad at that. Most of us, if we were really honest with ourselves, when we're having conversations with people, we're not actually hearing what they're saying because we are thinking more about what we're going to say when they're finished speaking. So you're in a conversation and you say something really good. They come back with a, a story that they've got, but we're not really hearing them because we're thinking about what we're going to say next. And we can't wait to speak. And we're not that good at really listening. And we want to sing our praises and boast about the good things that are happening in our life. But love is not like that. Love will listen to someone else's story. Love, even if their story is so small and so insignificant to your own experience, love will actually be excited about the story. Love will go, is that right? That's fantastic. That is amazing. That you might go home and think it really wasn't that amazing, but love will make that person feel like what's happened in their life is so good and so exciting. You know, we, our, our little granddaughter, she's top of the class with spelling and she's only in kindergarten. And she gets in the car and she's spelling words like would and should with a O-U-L-D. I'm, I'm just dumbfounded. She's in kindergarten, first year at school. 
And I, I, Margot and I, they go, that's fantastic, Sienna. That is awesome, you know. But, of course, we wouldn't do this with a child, although some might. Well, actually, Sienna, I, I can spell supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. Can you spell that? But yet, so often, we want to put ourselves up at the expense of somebody else having a sense of value and purpose. Love isn't boastful. Love is not proud. These are all action words. And if the church would just get this and say, God, I want to act in love today. When I leave my house and I connect with people, I want to make choices that will put value on them, make them feel good about themselves and not be so much engrossed in my day or my feelings or my experiences. Help me take my eyes off myself and get them on somebody. That's an act of love. You might not feel like you're very loving, but love is not a feeling. It's an action. And you see, when you walk close to the Holy Spirit, that's when the feelings really come. And you think, I really feel like loving. I really feel like doing this. I really enjoy it. And after a while, you'll get a kick out of it. You'll get high on it. It'll be like a drug. Because that's the way God operates. He wants us to feel good. Love is not proud. Proud, the word here is is having a sense or a high opinion of one's own importance. Pride blinds us to our true value but it also blinds us to the true value of others. When we're caught in pride, we inflate our value and we deflate the value of others. That's what pride actually does. Romans chapter 12 and verse 3. Is our computer still working? Still going? It crashed in the first service. Have we got that one? Romans chapter 12 and verse 3. For by the grace given me, we haven't, yes we have, for by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought. In other words, Paul is saying, don't have too high an opinion of yourself. In fact, the Bible tells us as disciples, as followers of Jesus Christ, to prefer one another above yourself. To actually have a greater preference for someone else to step in, for someone else to have a go, for someone else to be encouraged, rather than coming looking for encouragement, coming to give encouragement. But pride says, I'm more important than anyone else, and I should be the center of attention. I should be the focus. I should be the one that's receiving here, because I'm the important one. And none of us would actually say that as bluntly as that, but really, that's what often drives us when pride is our dominating force. The truth is, none of us, are any different in the eyes of God. You could have a wealthy businessman walk in here in a suit, done up to the nines, he's pulled up in a Maserati or or whatever it might be, and he comes in and he sits down next to a broken, homeless, drug-addicted, messed-up soul. In the eyes of God, those two people have exactly the same value. And pride makes us see the other as either more important or not as important. The church should be loving and love is not proud. You know, the truth is none of us bring any level of goodness to God. I've used this illustration. I was going to try and do it today, but I couldn't find a really dirty uh, $10 note and a really good crisp $10 note. But you've heard me say this before. You know, which one has the most value? They're both exactly the same. Oh, but that one's brand new. That one's crisp. It's like, but this one's all been, you know, it's seen the worst side of life. People are the same. They don't lose their value in the eyes of God. But pride in the church actually indicates that we think they do. I hope this is okay. James chapter 4 says, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. 
You know, you follow it. You do a study on this thing of pride where it says God resists the proud. You actually find there comes a time if the person God is resisting because of pride does not actually humble themselves and deal with that pride, God goes another step and he begins to stand against the proud. He doesn't just resist them now. He actually sets himself against them. That's a big step. I don't want God resisting me, let alone standing against me. But that's how God views pride. And pride sees ourselves as more important than the other. Love is not rude. Love is not rude. The J.B. Phillips paraphrases this part as love has good manners. We could do with a dose of that in the church, you know. Love has good manners. Manners. Love expands its vocabulary to include words and sentences like thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate that. Love even goes a step further and says, excuse me, why, why don't you go first? Or why don't you take my place in the line? You look tired. You look like you've had, why don't you, but I've been standing here for two hours already. It's like, but love actually is like that. You see, you remember the chipmunks cartoon? Oh, pardon me, pardon me, excuse me, excuse me. Oh, you go, go, go. No, no, I insist, you must go first. Who remembers that old chipmunk cartoon? I'm really showing my age now, aren't I? I really am showing my age. But love is, love is not rude. Uh, here's another one. That was my fault. I'm, 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 oh, that's a hard one to say, isn't it? Oh, that's a hard word to get up past our lips. I'm s I'm s Yeah, I'm stuck. <laughs> I like that. I'm just, who said that? Who said that? That's how you get out of saying sorry, is it? <laughs> that was my fault. I'm sorry. I hurt you. I wounded you. I'm sorry. You know something? That mends so many conflicts. If it's sincere, you can save yourself a whole mountain of pain and process and conflict resolution if you just come up and say, Tim, I'm sorry I broke your arm, mate. I'm really sorry. <laughs> I meant it. I did it on purpose. I'm owning it and I'm sorry. That's okay. <laughs> Sorry? No, but I didn't. I didn't break his arm. Oh, no, Margot's going, you didn't break his arm. Make sure you tell the people you didn't break his arm. I didn't, I didn't break his arm at all. I peeled his prawns for him the other day. That's, how, that's love, you see. That is love. Man, that is love at the highest degree. We had lunch together and he wanted king prawns. And he I can't peel them. I've got one in. I'll peel them for you, Tim. You have such a loving pastor, you know. I tell you something. You, you are so blessed. <laughs> Love is not boastful, is it? I just touched that one. <laughs> Love does not demand its own way. It doesn't pursue selfish advantage. Love is concerned with the well-being of others more than it is in the well-being of itself. It doesn't come in demanding its rights. You know, there's a spirit over the city of Newcastle, and I, I think it goes even further back than the new union movement. You know, that whole thing of my entitlements, my rights. You know, that, and, and I don't believe in exploiting workers, but there's an extreme mindset 
that has people now demanding their rights to the point where I don't start work till I hit that Bundy right on the nose. And I, I used to work in heavy industry and I'd watch people, they would stand a minute to seven. We start at seven. It's like we don't start till that siren goes. We're not giving the boss any more than what he deserves, any more than what we're getting paid for because it's our right, it's our entire... I think that's a shocking spirit. I really do. But at the same time, I think it's a shocking spirit for the other side to exploit their workers and get more out of them than they really should get. But at the same time, we've all got to have a give and take. But love doesn't demand its own way. Love looks out for the rights and well-beings of others. Love is not irritable. Oh, we could, we could camp right here for a little while. We could camp right here. Let me read off what not irritable looks like. Love is not easily angered. It's not touchy. And I don't mean touchy-feely. I'm talking about, what did you mean by that? Don't be touchy. Man, that is irritable. Love is not touchy. Love is not short-tempered. Love puts a long fuse on its emotional bombs. Love does not blow up at the least provocation. Love is calm under pressure. Love accepts responsibility for how we react to others. Love takes responsibility for how we handle unjustified aggravation. Love takes into consideration that interruptions will occur. Love does not plan each moment of the day as though we have complete freedom to do what we alone want to do. And then when what we alone want to do gets interrupted by somebody who just happens to drop in, just has a need, just makes a phone call, we start to get irritable. We start to become grumpy pants and grumble bum. Can you say that in church? Bit of a bummer if I can't, isn't it? <laughs> Self-absorption sets us up easily to become irritable and love is not irritable. Love is not irritable. Love is patient. Now watch this. I can feel irritable, but not be irritable. Because love is a choice. It's a decision. I can be really irritated by Tim. Tim's good to see you, mate. But on the inside, oh, you irritate the life out of me. I could break the other arm. You're a good bloke, Tim. Man, you're doing okay. You're doing really well. And on the inside, it's the opposite. You see, oh, that's hypocrisy. No, it's not. It's acting in love because love is a decision. Love is a choice. And the closer I walk to the Holy Spirit, the less my feelings are irritated and the more my feelings come in line with my actions. And I actually feel love because the love of God is shed abroad in my heart by the Holy Spirit. But if we're not fellowshipping with the Holy Spirit, how do we expect to get that? Some of you sitting here saying, I couldn't live up to this. Neither can I. None of us can. That's why we have the Holy Spirit to help us on the journey. Now, I picked on Tim because he and I are great mates and there's no issue between us and I definitely did not break his arm. Audrey did. Um, <laughs> no, she didn't. There's some people here probably believe that. <laughs> Sorry, Audrey. Love keeps no record of being wronged. I'm coming to an end very soon. Love keeps no record of being wronged. Love is not resentful. It holds no grudges. You've got to let it go. Being resentful, let me tell you something. I went through this. I had to process this, and it doesn't always happen overnight. Some, sometimes the wounds go deep, and it takes time. But holding on to resentment is letting somebody live rent-free in your head. You're not hurting them. It's you. You know, I think it was Bayless Connolly first phrased this, that unforgiveness and resentment is like acid. 
Acid does more damage to the vessel in which it is stored than to the object upon which it is poured. Let that sink in. And resentment is like the acid being stored in the vessel of your heart, your soul, and your mind. It's hurting you. It's letting someone live rent-free in your head. Love decides to forgive. And forgiveness, too, is an action, not a feeling. I can forgive you of a debt. You, you know, if you, if you owe me $100, and I come up to you and say, I forgive you of that debt, you don't have to pay it. That's it. I've forgiven you. But it doesn't mean... My feelings will be okay with that. I might go and say, I should never have forgiven them of that debt. I really needed that money. I really wanted it. They should pay it back. They they really shouldn't have been forgiven of that debt, but I have forgiven them of that debt because they're now no longer going to pay it. Forgiveness is the same. You've hurt me, and when I decide you now owe me nothing, you don't owe me an apology. You don't owe me to, to come and get it right. You don't owe me anything to resolve this issue. I let it go, but it might take time for my feelings to catch up with my act of forgiveness. I hope that helps somebody. I... I really, really do. Colossians 3.13 says, Make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. Love does not rejoice when inju- with, about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. It doesn't delight in evil, but it delights in the truth. You know, Are we delighted when our so-called enemies suffer? That's evil. It's evil winning out and we rejoice over it. And we are notorious for rejoicing with those who weep and weeping with those who rejoice. Rather than what the Bible actually says, weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. And the last one, love never gives up, never loses faith, is always hopeful and endures through every single circumstance. You know, our world is getting worse. And it will get worse. The Bible says, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. We cannot stop this spiraling down of life. Our world is getting worse. People are more messed up today. They're more broken today. And I'm going to be touching on having a huge heart for the lost and the broken. But you know something? Some people are so messed up and so broken that they'll come to church one week. You won't see them for three. They'll be back the next week and they'll be worse than what they were then. You'll encourage them. You'll sow into their life and then they'll disappear again for another month. Then they come back messed up again. Then they go good for a while. Then they come back messed up again. We've got to get excited by the fact they're still coming back and not get intolerant or impatient or frustrated by the fact that they've disappeared again. We've got to just keep praying for them, keep believing in them because love never gives up. Love never gives up. You know, it's like, oh, here they are again. Oh, look at them. They were, here they, oh, look, look, he's wearing his heart and his sleeve again. Oh, fair dinkum. I told him about this and I challenged him about that or her or whoever it might be. But here they are. Uh, yeah, it looks like he's been back on the, actually, he looks half tanked now. Look, oh, fair dinkum. I'm not, no, I'm not wasting my time anymore. That is not love. That is not what Jesus does. That is not how Jesus treats us. We never give up. We endure through every circumstance. We stay the course with people and their brokenness and their pain. You know, you, you know I don't know where the same sex, the same marriage, same sex marriage issue is going to go. I don't know where the whole gay thing's going to go or the repercussions upon the church. All I know is God loves everybody, including gay people. And I don't know where it's all going to lead, but the thing is we've got to keep believing in people, encouraging people, loving on people, trusting people. It's great to see you again. It's great to see you again. But you've got to mean it too. Absolutely mean it.
It's got to come out of a genuine, and only the Holy Spirit can do that. You walk close to Him, He'll shed His love abroad in your heart by the Holy Spirit. I, I really hope that's helped somebody this morning. God bless you.